The 10th Collective is an initiative from Revision Path and State of Black Design created to help connect black designers searching for their next opportunity with the companies that want to hire them. So if you're a black designer and you're looking for a new job, go to the10thcollective.com to sign up for free or check out the link in the show notes. Speaking of jobs, Revision Path's job board is now part of the 10th Collective, and you can go there to browse job listings, post your own jobs, and sign up for email updates when new job listings are posted. This week on the job board, Wheaton College, Massachusetts Department of Visual Arts and History of Arts is looking for an inaugural professor of practice in design in Norton, Massachusetts. Launchpad is looking for a senior product designer in New York City. For more information on these listings, including DEI statements, qualifications, salary, and more, visit revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. We're here to help you find your next big opportunity today. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Now, before we get into this week's interview, I just want to take some time and talk about one of our sponsors, Hover. As you know, it's 2023, the start of a new year, and you might have something new that you want to launch, like an art project or a podcast or your own website. Whatever it is that you're passionate about and you want to build it online, Hover has got your back. Everything online begins with a domain name, and Hover makes the process of choosing and using your domain name a piece of cake. And if you get stuck, they have a best-in-class customer support team that can help you out every step of the way. One thing I really like about Hover is that they have free who is privacy. So that means you can keep your identity safe from hackers or any other kind of nefarious agents out there on the web. And we know there's a, a lot of those out there these days. So you can get started today with Hover by going to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking once again with Gus Granger. Now, you might remember we had Gus on the show back in 2015. Um, so I'm really glad to have him back now to talk about what he's been up to since then, including his current consultancy work. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, my name is Gus Granger. I'm a designer. By that, I have graphic design roots, going brand identity, messaging, positioning, web, print, really everything that a brand needs to show up and be seen and memorable in the world. Now, we're recording this kind of right before the year ends, so I'm curious to get a, a sense from you. I'm like, what was 2022 like for you? Yeah, 2022 was a roller coaster ride. You know, I think you've, we've got, with all things, it's the personal side is, which is kind of like most prominent and having three kids and career changes going on. I've got a daughter that just started college this fall and that was exciting, which when she graduated from high school in the spring and that was exciting. 
Wow. Yeah. And I had the amazing experience of joining a partnership team at VSA Partners based out of Chicago, which was a dream job of mine when I worked there as a designer in the early 2000s. And I wrapped up my tenure there this summer, you know, wanting to get closer to my design roots and being more hands-on. So that was a big change in the summer and getting back to, you know, working as Gus Granger design again and being just getting in the trenches with clients and designing and having these in-depth conversations and just being able to, you know, walk that journey with my clients while doing the work has been really exciting and something that I've missed. That is a lot. Well, congratulations yeah. definitely on your daughter uh, going to college. Yeah, yeah. It's wild. The, the, <laughs> the, the first few weeks was really difficult. And my mom, mom said, it's like, the first month is the hardest. And I was like, I wonder what she's doing now. And da, 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 da. And, but she's doing great. She comes home for the holidays pretty soon. Nice. Is she like far from Dallas where you're at? Oh, as, as far as possible. <laughs> She's, I'm in Dallas, and she's in uh, upstate New York at Syracuse University. Oh, wow. Double major, yes, she's a double major in political science and photography. Okay. And I think is just tapping into her creative side, as well as you know wanting to change the world and change the systems and make the society better and learning the building blocks and tools and how to make that happen from the inside. So um, that's exciting to see her grow in that regard as well. That's awesome. That's really awesome to hear. So you mentioned with VSA, this kind of was like a full circle moment for you in a way. You started there many years ago as a designer and then now going back and, and being a partner. Like, what was that experience like for you? Oh, it was amazing. Going back to like, it, I'm having to like embrace my kind of like uh, elder statesman status, which is terrible. <laughs> but <laughs> for one, going through design school in the the mid nineties that we were VSA partners was a dream. I think there were like shops at that point was a VSA and Pentagram, which, you know, really kind of like helped set my kind of like goals for, you know, what I wanted to do in the profession. And when I ultimately ended up working there as a senior designer, came across some of the just most talented and really interesting projects that I'd, I'd come across in my career at that point. And, you know, it was from there that I went off into the wilderness and started my own agency and grew that for me working by myself in an extra bedroom to a 50 person studio on the 30th floor of a building down here in downtown Dallas to selling it to a client and then going in house and leaving that. It was definitely an exciting bookend, kind of not just from having worked there before, but also kind of like looking up to the work that that studio was doing and just groundbreaking, just design, in-depth understanding of clients and delivering business value while just doing just stunning work. Getting to go back and join the leadership team there as they kind of like enter this like new digital era that everyone is getting their bearings with was really a great opportunity and um, honor and something that I enjoyed a lot. And now you're working for yourself as a consultant. Has it been kind of a big shift going? I don't know. I guess maybe this is another kind of full circle thing, like going back to working for yourself. Has it been a bit of a shift? 
Oh, for sure. I think that, as I mentioned, going from running a large agency, starting it from scratch, and you I always say like every time your team doubles in size, it's a different job. So when you go from one mm-hmm. person to two person, you're like, what is this? I'm like, well, this is completely different from two to four, from four to eight, from eight to 16. It was kind of like I was doing that for about 15 years and it kind of felt like the math isn't right here, but it kind of felt like six or seven jobs, you know, working in six or seven different places. But during the last few chapters, so much of my time was focused on just running a business and being so distant from the work that, you know, I really wasn't, I certainly wasn't designing. There were times that I may have been wearing an executive creative director hat, but it was more just business operations and payroll and HR and cash flow management and sales and all the things that were not what I was passionate about in the first place. It's an essential part of running a, a large a large business. You just miss like what you were passionate about in the first place. Ultimately, that's what led me to we transitioning the agency to in-house situation through that acquisition to our client Sixterra at the time. That was a brand new, gigantic global technology company, data center, cybersecurity, that had been a client of ours that we'd been part of naming, building their brand identity from scratch, and that they had been growing so large as a client, you know, we just sat down with the CMO and it's like, let's look at how this could look if, you know, we just kind of took our team and kind of became your in-house group and then all of us are dedicated. And ultimately, that's what we did. And that allowed me to get back to being more hands-on and with the same group of amazing people that I had in the 70 KFT days. But, you know, we were kind of on the other side of the client curtain. And what's fascinating there is that there's so many different problem-solving challenges that you can kind of confront as a designer, as an art director, as a creative director, as, as, as a product architect, that would not necessarily be sent to an agency. And it's I'd never been in-house before, and it's just a very different and fascinating ecosystem when you're working directly with sales teams, when you're working directly with product teams. And the pace of work is very different. The way that you manage work is very different because there aren't quote-unquote budgets for your hours and your team's time, and you've got to find different ways to manage capacity and how much time should something take but it also opens up opportunities to you know we're designing like wayfinding systems for at least 60 data centers around the world to graphics for interior sales displays to events to video work that just the sheer volume and depth in the brand experience was really 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 exciting and but seeing how our clients would have to socialize that and sell that work and get you know the information gathered that all of those things that we missed out on that we weren't necessarily as exposed to being on the agency side just give me a much deeper appreciation for our clients that um, sometimes we can have fun kind of teasing our, our clients and being difficult make the logos bigger blah 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 like we can't get them to <laughs> sign off on something. <laughs> Yeah, I still have my my agency chip on my shoulder in that regard, but um, there's much more empathy, I say, after um, doing the two years there. Yeah, back when we had you on the show in 2015, the firm that you're you're talking about is 70KFT, and I mean, I think it's important to 
a couple of things that you mentioned, I think are important. First, the thing about every time you, you kind of double your staff, it's a different job. That is so true. You, it does distance you from the work a bit. And like the more that you have to be the CEO running the business, it takes so much time away from actually being hands on with the work. Sometimes you can do it. I mean, depending on the type of business that you have, you're able to do it, but it does get a lot harder because you just have to be aware and present about so many other things that have nothing to do with the projects at all that you're working on. Absolutely. And I don't say that to scare people off from starting or growing their own design firm or agencies. And there's certainly ways that I could have grown the agency differently to keep myself closer to the work in leading it. I think at the time, there was just enough fatigue and wanting to do something different that when that opportunity came up with Sixterra, it was like, look, here's a way for me to continue doing the type of work that I love, doing even more of it and being more hands-on, keeping my team together. And then happened to also be a, a client that we you know, adored and we had done a lot of work with over the years when he was in, um, in, in different companies. And so we just, there was a lot of like just trust and alignment for the business value of great design and what it looks like to advocate that for that um, within, within a large growing organization. And so that, that made that change a lot more attractive. So I say all of that, the, the, the attractiveness of that moment was like, you know what, this is more interesting than trying to go through a wholesale reset of how I have organized and bringing in different leadership to handle the types of aspects of the job that I I didn't enjoy so that I could yeah. be more hands-on. It was just like, you know what, let's go this way because this looks like fun and, and something fresh and new. And it was, and I'm glad we did it. Yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, you are, you're running a business. And so especially like if you're a designer that maybe came up through design school, or if you don't have that kind of business acumen, you're either sort of learning it on the job as the company grows, or you have to find some way to, like you said, supplement that with bringing on folks that do know the business end so you can build and scale things out, hopefully in like a healthy way. And I think, you know, certainly you grew 70 KFT, like you said, to 50 people. I mean, that's a testament to not just the work that you've put in on the brand, but also the people and the team that you built around it. Oh, 100%. I forget who said this first. It actually may have been one of my first bosses through VSA. I think it was Dana Arnett. It talked about so much of growing a great team is about curating talent. Mm -hmm. And that my philosophy through this was just trying to find the and attract the best and most talented people possible and then just finding opportunities for them to do their thing and get folks to work well together. And that was the most fun part of that and creating an environment where they can find just joy in working with each other and pushing each other and finding, you know, like new ways to, and, and inventive ways to sell our clients story. And, you know, we were, had a whole mix of things that were, we were very much you know, leaned into business to business technology but we are also working with a lot of startups and some retail work. And we also reserved a, a percentage of our time for nonprofit work, which ended up being a lot of work for the Dallas Holocaust Museum, which kind of like helped us kind of 
satisfy us this more mission centric priority for the agency. It was from from the leadership standpoint on my side, and wanted to make sure that we're doing we're putting our skills to use to benefit society. And that's something I still try to do with my own time, but that it's like there's so much that we are creating that's just fleeting. You know, yeah. you make a website. And it's, you know, it might be live for you know, a year or, or less. The <laughs> client gets acquired and the identity that you just love just gets wiped away. And then you know, what's left? What impact did you make on the world? You helped someone sell a business. Yeah. Um, and that's great. You put a few more dollars in their pocket. But, you know, I think what we have unique superpowers in capturing people's imagination and attention and persuasion through our gifts as artists, as creators, as communicators. And too often, those skills are not put to work for the most important communication challenges that are that are holding the world back today, whether it's just racism, just bias in general, climate change, you know, we can just go right on down the list. Mm-hmm. And that for us to isolate our gifts for corporate interests is a tragedy. And we notably, but we've got to eat. We got kids to put through college sometimes. There's a whole number of things and finding the right balance of that is, is key. But yeah, that's part of my soapbox. No, (laughs) I mean, I feel like that's been a growing awareness of the industry over the, I don't know. I, I want to say at least over the past three years, but I would even go back as far as maybe like, 15, 2016, you've started to see this sort of unfold in different ways. Like I would say definitely in the like 2016 to 2018, 2019, it was more about, I think, civic design and making sure that people were using their skills towards, you know, maybe improving government services or improving and understanding the election process and voting and all that sort of stuff. And then certainly with 2020 and a lot of the the protests that happened around the murder of George Floyd, then you started to see a more active presence around social justice issues. And, and I think it's definitely going to increase as more, I hate to say just as more like bad shit happens in the world, but that's kind of the reality of it is like, as more things happen, we as designers are tasked to come up with more solutions that are not just, product focused like in a way it almost feels almost i'll say it almost feels a little dismissive to just focus on product as a designer almost i mean i think there's utility in it certainly like even as you mentioned with doing stuff with sixtera like doing things around cybersecurity and things that's important that feeds into product Mm -hmm. but i think of like the designers of 2011 versus the designers of now and how the focus back then was so much on like product and UX and interfaces and, and all that sort of stuff. And now it's about how do we use our skills to solve the problems that are like facing our society and our planet. Right. You know? Yeah. There's definitely a different mindset today. And I think I totally agree that sadly it's something has to really go wrong to get people to wake up or enough people to wake up. Cause even you mentioned, you know, things like government services and election design. I got involved with that going back in 2000, there's an organization that was part of AIGA, Design for Democracy, that came out of the problems around ballot design in Florida, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the election between um, Al Gore and George Bush, that that's an effort which continues today. 
around how to make sure election systems are better designed to protect the integrity of the vote. And that like, and there were many people that were rallying to the cause back then, but there's it's like the problems <laughs> that we can be attacking with our skills are ever present. Yeah, it's a matter of like, we could also wear ourselves out trying to do everything. So you kind of have to, I think in my mind, like, all right, pick your space and like, where can I be the most effective and make the biggest impact? Yeah. What does a, a typical day look like for you now? Like, what does the Gus Granger workday look like? Gus Granger workday. You know what? I think these days I'm like, I'm so much more guarded with for my health, my mental health. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I talk about joy and wanting to be in a good space. And I'm like, I will start, even though I'm working from home, I'm like, I start each day, you know, like I will go to like one of my favorite breakfast spots and it's my commute. You know, it's like, and I've like, I have carefully curated and found the best chocolate croissant places in the Dallas Metroplex area. (laughs) I will rotate through those locations. I like, I need to start a chocolate croissant blog, but that's a whole other podcast. But (laughs) I say all that, that that's like my happy spot. And like, I just know that I'm like, I'm listening to comedy podcasts. I'm not going to wake up in the morning and just start listening to like the grim news of the day. Mm -hmm. Because like, I need to start the day in a positive space. But from there, you know, and I get back and, you know, start work that's I'm back in my pandemic inspired office, um, which is as didn't exist back in early 2020. But now I'm so much more comfortable and cozy there. But, you know, I'm working with, you know, having a number of different conversations around projects that'll come to fruition, you know, months from now, working with clients that, you know, I'm in the middle of right now. And, it's a mix. You know, some of these things are in a design phase and we're going through looking at identity explorations or design system explorations. Others are in a brand strategy phase and we might be doing interviews with subject matter experts and other internal uh, contacts to really start figuring out the right ways to differentiate the brand and looking at how to, to start the conversation in the right place and to elevate the right values and principles that are going to help define that that brand at its best. Because we try to do that before we even start designing anything, before we start writing anything. But I'll go through that brand strategy and messaging phase with amazing copywriters that I've been working with for years that we lay that foundation. And so I've been in different stages of that work. And yeah, and I'm about to like start a web project next week. And But it's what's great is that there's just enough of it that it's not a, a nine to five type thing. You know, I can go and have a a leisurely breakfast and go and like walk four miles and come back and I can start my day at 10 and if I feel tired, I can take a nap (laughs) and wake back up and do some of those things. And the next day it'll be completely different. That's the great part of, you know, kind of being the home-based consultant, at least at this moment, talk to me a month from now, you might get a more frazzled version of me, but um, hopefully I'm able to kind of keep that at bay. Well, it's it's always, I think, an ebb and a flow with entrepreneurship, you know, some days are going to be better than others, some months, some years. It just sort of ends up happening that way. But it sounds like you found a deliberate way to put joy just into kind of your everyday work life in general. Yeah. And it's a lesson that I've taken, I think, from the more like intense days of my 70 KFT experience where I'm like, there were like, I think from my standpoint, I'm like, I could go through just 
joyless months and just trying to, you know, hold teams together and dealing with all kinds of just different operational headaches, HR headaches, team conflicts. I'm like, when you've got, you know, dozens of people working for you, not everybody gets along. Yeah. And there are times when <laughs> um, that the job becomes camp counselor and, you know, couples therapist. And, mm-hmm. and it's not just for its own sake. It's like, look, I've got to get these folks to work together so that we can get this project completed so we can bill it on Monday. Yeah. That's an intense part of the experience. And that's definitely not something they teach you or even allude to in design school. Oh, no. And, you know, we were in, in talking a bit earlier, it was like, there's so much that gets into there are designers that are ready to start working for themselves as soon as they know how to design, whether they're coming out of a four-year program or if they're self-taught and like, now I'm going to start working for myself. And I'm like, I am so regularly trying to steer them clear from that. And you'd be like, please don't for your own sanity. And, <laughs> um, and just, but there's so much that needs to be learned at that point from other people. And, you know, go and like find a creative director, art director, somebody that's going to take you under their wing, whether you can work for them directly or they're going to mentor you, that you're going to just make a ton of mistakes, um, find ways to solve problems that you even thought of, that you got to kind of go through that for years to really learn how to design at your best. Yeah. And then once you figure that out, you start working for yourself. It may start being familiar when it's just you or when you start collaborating, but it will start growing to a point where you're like, oh, this is why people go to business school. Mm-hmm. And you start realizing like, all right, do I start kind of reading more business books and all these other things or start hiring for skills that I may not have? Because when you've got a dozen people and you're dealing with like lease negotiation, and that's a different animal these days because I mean, you can with remote and hybrid work, it's a very different, you know, atmosphere than when I was growing my agency. But I think those days I'm like, you kind of had to have an office in order for a client to take you seriously. Yeah. And that does like, all right, we're looking at commercial real estate, downtown Dallas, seven year lease. How do I grow? How do I contract? Is that even possible? And look at business insurance and all kinds of this. Just, <laughs> it's again, stuff that you don't, you wouldn't even get into a design school, but you may find great relationships from other designers, which I did that had run studios to be able to pick their brain and to figure out what things that they did and who did they seek out for consulting. And you start finding consultants that just specialize in working with design firm principles or marketing firm principles. And that's such an important resource that I feel like just gets overlooked a lot, whether we look at our, our design conferences or design groups, we're talking about how we can be better problem solvers, being better designers, better collaborators. And that's all essential. And like that's central to what it is that we do. I think we're kind of like a, a naturally entrepreneurial group of folks and want to kind of create our own thing. We enjoy the independence or the autonomy. But the other aspect of it is like there's a lot that you need to learn that we don't talk about enough and design circles that I'd I'd love to see change in the future. Yeah. I'm laughing only because as you mentioned that I'm thinking how back when I had my studio, particularly I think think in the first four or five years about trying to have an address was so important to let people know like, Oh yes, we are a real business. 
And I remember, I think I got a, I got like some little tiny office space because it was important for me to have, because I'm in Atlanta, it was important for me to have an address that was like Peachtree Street. So people know like, oh, he's official. And I had like some little tiny office. I think I got it through Regis probably. The real estate company got it through Regis. Some little tiny office in Midtown that I never went to. But I just wanted to have the address so people knew like, yep. oh, this is official. In the grand scheme of things, did it make a difference? Absolutely not. But in a way, sort of like you mentioned, it would have been good to have had some knowledge to know like, maybe I don't have to have this. Maybe I don't have to waste money trying to do this to prove it to customers I'm never going to get, you know? Well, I don't know, man. I'm like, it's kind of tough to prove a negative because you think of mm, like true. how many folks reached out to you because you had an address during those days where it's like, oh, this isn't a P.O. box or somewhere in the suburbs. Yeah. But just by seeing that you were there on a peach street, this, it's not, no one's going to call you and be like, I saw that you had an address. Let's talk about the project. <laughs> you know, I think it, it's definitely one of those things where like, I think when I had moved from, you know, I'd been working in South Bend, Indiana for some time. Uh, my wife was running marketing and PR for Whirlpool Corporation, which was based near there. We were about to have our third kid and we wanted to move closer to friends and family. We came back to Dallas and my, you know, the agency was growing at that point. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go ahead and get a space in, I think at that point it was like West End. And Dallas is a historic district, pretty creative space. And I just knew that there were going to, the type of the clients that I was wanting to work with we're going to want to come to an office and see me and see the space. Mm. And, and frankly, and I'm like, I think at that point where I'm like, I was also just thinking about just as a black designer period that I'm like, if I'm constantly trying to meet clients in a Starbucks, when I'm trying to get them to pay me a hundred grand for a website that what we're talking about, you know, like in the 2010s, I think that was a, a tougher ask at least in the the circles that I was moving in then to get where, you know, when they could come and be in our conference room and I can, you know, bring my director of development to the table to bring their account manager, to bring them as a designer and the, and the copywriters and we can put stuff up on the screen. All of that can happen through zoom today. But as far as, you know, that confidence building, mm-hmm. just having an address is one step. I think there's absolutely types of work that you need to, at that point, I'm not sure kind of like what the equivalent would be if those barriers are just erased, but you just kind of needed to have a space for the types of clients that we were working with just that they could see and come and and realize this is a real, the real shop. Yeah, I think certainly like in the earlier days, I started my business in, in 2008. Some clients or potential clients, they really sort of frowned on, you know, like, oh, you're just like doing this from home. You're just, you know, like now everyone works from home, but, but certainly back then there was a, I felt there was a, a much stronger bias, especially to try to get larger clients and larger budgets. They're like, I'm not giving you this money if you're doing this at home. Like they want to, it's almost like a, a social proof of business in some kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. Now you've been a design leader and a business leader for over 20 years now, and you've already kind of shared some thoughts about what you'd like to see from designers. But what are your thoughts on just the design community today? Like, how do you see that? Hey, it's funny, like, as, as I keep looking at whether it's like LinkedIn and different discussions that are going on at conferences and events, it's like what we mean by design 
today is different than what we meant by design 10 years ago or even 20 years ago. And that I've come to realize, I'm like, all right, I'm kind of a brand and marketing designer where in a way that I wouldn't necessarily have carried that label. Because even then I'm like, like I was, I will rewind back. I'm a graphic designer at my core. And I think I even mentioned that early on and people are like, oh, well, that's, that's an old sounding term. We always have these labels, whether commercial artists, graphic artists, graphic designers, web designer. But in starting at the, the foundation of graphic designers, the way I was educated and being hyper passionate about conceptual thinking, typography, composition, understanding audience, adventure, discovery, being inventive and and creating, you know, surprising and effective work that in my experience design is kind of medium agnostic. And so I've always kind of had an allergy of, are you a graphic designer? Or are you a web designer? I'm like, stop. It's all graphic design in my worldview. And I understand there are people that look at them very differently, but I feel like, you know, if you've got a masterful command of typography and you can understand a medium that the world of creating an elegant website can be very similar process to creating an amazing book. But you need to understand what you're working with. You need to understand your materials. You need to understand the people you need to collaborate in order to make that happen. Not to say that web development is the same as working with a printing press, but there are certain rules that you need to know how a book is going to function, what type of experience someone expects when they pick up a hardcover book versus a paperback book to be able to navigate that content elegantly. And I think if those same muscles are put to place, the digital experience is the same. So I think things have become even more fragmented today and that there's, because we will say design and what we'll mean is UX design, which may Mm -hmm. not involve visual design at all or just UI design using a component library, which is not the same thing as kind of the more commercial artist view of creating something from scratch that may be, you know, the a step earlier on the process to be like, who is the person that's actually creating that component library and deciding how that brand is going to show up in the product experience and what is its relationship with the overall brand as a whole, is there a relationship between how the brand shows up in marketing and how it shows up in product? But those that are kind of like working with a preset component library that may be less involved with aesthetic decisions and more about flow and kind of like using existing building blocks to create compelling experiences, it's a different process entirely than kind of like staring at a blank page in the screen and be like, you know, here's brand X and here's what they're trying to solve for in the world. What should it look like? I've come through my view of design, my background in design, the version of design, which gets me excited is the blank page. Or perhaps it's the existing page, which is messed up. And the client that comes in is like, help me make sense of this and make it better. But there's a lot of design work that's out there that is kind of is less it seems to be like i hesitate to say because it, like, it almost seems like it would be controversial but it's like it seems to be less creative which hmm. I, I don't understand as much but which is not to say that it's not a, a matter of problem solving because i would have debates with one of my creative directors mm-hmm. and in about 
design as art or not. And we can go back and forth until we're blue in the face. Like, what do we mean by art? And I'm like, look, we're in a profession and in our roots as commercial artists. And that the whole notion of us creating experiences that people want to engage with, that they feel connected with in a way which is an emotional type of experience, whether it's bringing them joy or they're attracted to it or it's bringing them calm, peace, the skills that we bring to the table there are the same innate gifts, in my view, and experience that are, are at the core of an artist. And when I was looking, when I whenever I would review portfolios, I'm like, let me, what can I see in this person's aesthetic gifts? I'm like, how innate are they able to kind of create compelling compositions? And it's not just to be like, all right, I'm just going to go ahead and decide that this app needs to look like Salvador Dali thing because this is what inspires me today. But one of my favorite architects today is Zaha Hadid. Mm. And if you just Google her work, it's insane. These buildings are beautiful and arresting and shocking and very functional. But there's a very different thing. You can't tell me that there's not artistry or at least the way that I'm defining art and the way that that team or that architect, she's no longer with us, viewed designing spaces for her clients. You can say the same thing to be like, all right, if she's going to create a post office as opposed to someone who's like, look, post office look like a gray box. We're going to put some tracked out, you know, Futura on the side. It's going to be one story. It's going to do this and it's going to do the job. Those buildings are going to look completely different, but the cultural impact the emotional experience of people going into a Zadid post office is night and day to the gray box. And it's like, that's the view of design that I hunger for. I don't see as, as present in the, in the, in the digital space today. I think accessibility and user experience is definitely benefiting it from, from a bunch of artists, anarchists going out there, just creating a bunch of, chaos which was exemplified in the flash era but there was a lot more beauty and discovery i think happening in the digital space that was there again but um it's a whole other rant no i completely agree in terms of the kind of less creative and i see what you mean about it could be controversial by saying that but correct me if i'm wrong here but i feel like when you say that it's sort of like there's less i don't know there's there's less kind of verve there's not that sort of spirit or enthusiasm like you know you mentioned Zaha Hadid I'm thinking also of like and this is probably a bit of a a stretch in terms of an analogy but like look at things like AI generated art and how yes you can input the right functions or whatever and it spits something out that looks good but like it doesn't have that human nuance to it it doesn't have that sort of certain je ne sais quoi that would make yeah. it really i wouldn't necessarily even say attractive because these do these things do look good but like it just doesn't have that that something i'm not sure what the the word for it is but i know what you mean i think when you say that yeah well or even in, in the instance of the ai generated art i've seen some of it which does have that je ne sais quoi mm-hmm. but it's getting the prompt of um to be influenced by you know a human being that created that right it's still leveraging human ingenuity 
it's like a collage, a seamless collage. And, you know, that I can just go in there and be like, I want to see the, the Zaha Hadid Tesla truck. Mm-hmm. And then it'll just spit out and be like, it'll be this amazing thing. And that, okay, but I'm like, it's still going to have this aesthetic. And it's going to also, you know, be inspired by a, it seems to be a proto-fascist. Anyway, I can start getting into it. <laughs> Elon Musk rant. I will back away from the Tesla discussion. <laughs> Technology, monstrous person. I was just trying to kind of, you know, maybe extrapolate a little bit on what you were were sort of saying. I won't say the lack of creativity, but I see what you mean about it possibly being less creative because it's about, I don't know, the output is just different. You've said before that creating great design is easiest when it's infused with joy. So maybe that joy is not necessarily in the final product in the same way that it would be if a human did it. Like, I know that there's a lot of conversation around AI-generated art, chat GPT, and all these sorts of technologies that are mimicking what humans have created by hand. But, like, it's a really interesting time for seeing where technology can take design. But Mm -hmm. back to what I said before about what you mentioned with joy, like, have there been moments in your design career that have been particularly joyful? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's there are times that I look fondly at the times when we've got just a group of us and we're just trying to, you know, it may be my developers and writers and designers and we're just, you know, at our magnet wall and we've just got layouts up and we're just trying to figure out how to solve a particular problem. and that there's a the joy part of it and it's like and I, I don't mean to kind of like just to make it simple be like well just somebody tell a joke and the work is going to get better there's the ability to kind of like have fun with people and to challenge each other is like all that comes from a foundation of trust and that you know we've got good relationships with people that we can now kind of start to critique the work and riff off of each other and be like and cut to the chase and be like you know what this sucks and here's why and that we can kind of like laugh about it. like yeah 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 i was trying to do this and blah, 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 blah. that i'm kind of or like this is amazing and it would be even better if we did this that it's there's this kind of lens of bringing you know more candor to a conversation when you have a trusted group of collaborators where you can kind of like push and play and make it so people aren't afraid to bring new ideas to the table because there's, you know, nothing is like personal and, and, and it can be fun. I'm like one of, and coming up, I hadn't seen this replicated. No, I didn't never really embraced it. But um, in one of my early jobs before I started my agency was uh, at a studio called Group Baronet here in Dallas. And there was a brainstorm room and there was an entire shelf that was just full of hats. Bunch of just silly, stupid hats like Viking hats and clown hats and policeman hats, ship captain hats. There weren't chairs in there. They were all beanbag chairs, right? Mm-hmm. And so people would need to sit in these beanbag chairs. And oftentimes people would go and put on these silly hats. And it was a culture of the agency of kind of like, it was family-like and it was fun, but it was definitely served a business purpose in that it was seeding creativity and an openness and not taking each other too seriously. And I think it also just kind of keeps you grounded when you've got a, you know, stupid clown hat on your head when 
<laughs> we're saying like, I, what, what if we did it this way? So that's the utility of it. And otherwise, when we're just kind of the opposite and we're defensive or protective and we're not sharing our work and we just kind of work in isolation and just present something when we feel like it's perfect and honed and may not be as open to feedback, it's just much more difficult to create work that way in my mind. And and the opposite, it's when you're wanting to pursue experimentation that I want to be able to just, you know, go over to developers and be like, you know, what if we did this this way? And, you know, when the page loaded, like all these images just exploded and here's why, and here's why it would make sense. And I'm like, that's impossible. I'd be like, well, look, here's a link which did it. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. That can't happen. And they come back 10 minutes and they they figured it out. Um, (laughs) That's the kind of stuff that, you know, that has happened throughout whether like my VSA days from the 70 KFT days to being at Six Terra, that that's the type of atmosphere that I find the most fun and interesting work kind of came out of it. This is a closing thought. And like we bring that same energy to whether we're working on, you know, an identity system for a juice bar or helping clients sell cloud computing to we're doing exhibition design for boosting awareness of genocide. Which is not to say we're not taking it seriously, but this whole notion of building an atmosphere of trust and experimentation so that the team that you've surrounded yourself with, which are hopefully people that are there as your cheerleaders, can be there during critiques or while you're working to kind of like push and cheer you on. So that's that. Something else that you do is you maintain an active presence in social justice efforts through a variety of nonprofits. And you've mentioned that you're focused on eliminating barriers for marginalized designers in the profession and empowering them for success. Now, you've kind of spoken a little bit on both of these things earlier, but did you have any sort of more thoughts around either of those? Yeah, and I think that's important. And I think for, I continue to do work locally with the the Dallas Holocaust and Human Rights Museum, which is, I think that was a large relationship that we had in the 70 KFT days, and we were doing, you know, all of their exhibition design and work on naming and identity work back then. But now I'm working with them on their their marketing committee and on their new facility, and they're doing important work here in North Texas to mentoring, whether working with the Adobe Design Circle and helping scholarships for marginalized designers and uh, mentoring the, the scholarship you know designees, other mentoring programs, and on continuing relationships with mentees as i tell all my mentees over the years and i was like look you've got me for life if you want me (laughs) and because i think that's where i'm like i get the most satisfaction out of seeing their careers just soar but i think you know as when something more tactical and urgent is happening like locally that might like have gotten involved with political candidates and protest movements and you know as i mentioned earlier it's like look how can we bring our skills to the table (laughs) to make sure things are, are effective. And um, we kind of uh, worked with a bunch of folks and, you know, the local resistance movement back in 2016 to oust a, a problematic congressman that, and it was bringing my design skills to bear there in a way that, that, that made sense. I think we just have to find whatever is possible. And I think, and, you know, as well as within professional associations and, you know, mentioned whether it's in, in online groups, whether 
I try to stay present with black design groups as well, you know, which we chat a bit on like on in the past, you know, about AIGA and other groups that there's just in the design profession, period, it's important for us to push. And I try to do that where I think it's it's important that we're taking our talents and putting them to use. I'm like, yes, could I sit down and do a phone bank for my local congressman? Sure. Am I gonna be more effective? By you know bringing my skills to, as a designer, probably, and that I'm like you know, like what unique skills are you blessed with in this life? You know what's your highest and best use to make that particular cause come to fruition? And so to that part, whether you're helping movements, that's key. Whether you're helping you know t- talented designers to navigate early career challenges, pitfalls, advice, and I'm like I get such satisfaction out of that, and that's this is high-level summary of um, the stuff that I've been up to. What's something that you've let go of that once like meant the world to you? We've talked a bit about it, but I think it was that agency. I talked a bit about the importance of mental health and how I prioritize starting my day and with a ritual that's going to kind of make, make sure that I'm in a good mood. That starting and growing my own agency was my dream job. That was my dream going back to college. And I did that. And I grew it. And I was very proud of it. And in the last chapters, I think from there was just enough things that just caught me off guard, clients that let you down, betrayals from people you thought you could trust, that it just, it became such a a burden and a, a drag that I was like, I'm not happy. Mm-hmm. And when you look around at all, even looking around at like dozens of folks and I'm like, I am the only person at this place that cannot quit their job. Mm-hmm. Anyone else here can give their two weeks notice except for me. And it's definitely a first world problem. right? <laughs> I'm like, Oh, you've got your own design agency and you're sad. Um, (laughs) that was very much a reality. And I think, and it was, I realized it was something that I need in that moment I needed to let go of. And I'm glad I did. And that it's definitely something where it's a lot of trust where, you know, a lot of people kind of can, can get into like, did all this success happen by chance? If I give it up, I'm going to be able to do it again. It gives you a lot of a key moment of just self-analysis of like, all right, it's a giant leap of faith. You know, if I take this change, is this next chapter going to be as rewarding and successful for me? And if I have to do it all over again, can I? For me, it became important to do that. And that I found a way to make a change with how my team was doing work and to protect their jobs was important for me because I think there had been enough just challenges in, in, in the years prior to that, that we'd gone through just, you know, things of like having a, a business of that size and going through like just firings and layoffs and things where it's like business ebbs and flows. It's like, it's just a different animal entirely. And it just ate me up and I didn't want to go, I just didn't want to do it anymore. And so letting that go was, um, that was probably the answer to that question. What does success look like now at this stage of your career? I'm still trying to figure that out. 
I'm quite happy working for myself again. There's conversations kind of going with really interesting companies that have reached out to me about roles that were are surprisingly, you know, compelling fit for my background and passions that I would never have imagined before. But I look at it all, I'm like, what? One, I'm like, is it going to bring me joy? But kind of what's key for that joy is knowing that I'm making some kind of positive impact, that I have space to make a positive impact on the world, that I have the ability (laughs) to make a positive impact on my family and keep kids in college. One's there. I've got two more on the way to continue to be a good dad and to be a good husband. And, you know, it's just to prepare for just a well-balanced life where we can just travel and spend time with friends and family and, and do what I love. Somewhere in the middle of that is a definition of it, but that's very much what I'm trying to figure out because I spent most of my career kind of like focused on that, uh, that agency, either preparing to start it and grow it from college and then you know having done that i don't have that that north star anymore so i'm trying to figure that out and that's kind of exciting yeah i have to say there is a certain i don't know exhilaration to not knowing what's coming next in a way like there's certainly you know don't get me wrong stability is great <laughs> the lure of having you know a stable paycheck and knowing where the work is coming from is good but there's just something really freeing and exhilarating about you know, just not really knowing what's coming up on the horizon. But I don't know. It's, it's, to me, it's very empowering. So I get where you're coming from there. Yeah. yeah. To that end, where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what kind of work would you like to be doing? In my dream, I was just having a great conversation with this uh, black owned, you know, real estate developer in Portland, and she's doing amazing work. And she just started this firm that is just focused on mission-based projects and affordable housing for the black community. And that's like, that is their whole focus. And if I like, and I'm like, maybe something like that ends up being the goal. And, you know, I mentioned like all those things that I would want to have, you know, like be part of that. But I'm like, that is kind of the fantasy, right? And that knowing that I'm, Every aspect of my work life is helping improve society and the black community would be amazing. And if it ends up being a percentage or a portion of my time that's going into that, that I like that could be the case too. I think if I can unlock a way to kind of like have that be the main thing, that would be the fantasy. But in the meantime, I know I'm going to be heads down working hard putting his kids through college and hopefully having some fun along the way. Well, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more information about you and your work and everything? Where can they follow you online? GusGranger.com. That is G-U-S-G-R-A-N-G-E-R.com. And that's also my handle on the socials. So you can find me on Instagram. We'll see if I'll continue to be on Twitter but it's the same handle across the board. So you can find me. I'm pretty easy. There might be, if you find another Gus Granger, it might be my dad. (laughs) He's pretty cool. If you want to talk to him. Sounds good. Gus Granger. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Of course, you've been on the show before, but 
you know, I know we didn't talk a lot about kind of, and it was something that we purposely wanted to avoid talking about, but that's how we first met. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to mention it, but yeah, 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 yeah. I just want to say thank you for being just such a, a positive influence and role model and mentor and everything. Just the work that you're doing across design and business, of course, is impressive, but even more so that you're really about giving back to the community is something that I certainly look up to and I hope a lot of other designers emulate throughout their career. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Well, Maurice, thank you. And I hope you keep this in here. But I'm like, I want to thank you in in the same regard for all the work that you're doing. And like, I know I've been talking to you about this for a while. I'm like, this podcast is so essential. And I think back to that designer that was in design school that I'm like, I went through four years and I couldn't, I don't think I'd been exposed to another black designer other than myself and maybe two others that were in my design program. But the whole notion of being able to be sent a link, which has in-depth interviews with now hundreds of black designers, that is amazing. And I'm so glad that your work has been recognized, whether it's with the Stephen Heller Award by the Smithsonian. It is impressive and it's well-deserved and just, you know, just kudos. And I I can't wait to see uh, what's going to come next. Keep doing it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Big, big thanks to Gus Granger. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Gus and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is sponsored by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With best-in-class customer service, free Whois privacy, and more, Hover is there to help you bring your online dreams to life. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you liked this episode, please let us know. We're on social media on Twitter and Instagram, at Revision Path. Or you could follow us on Spotify or Amazon Music, or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Actually, I just started up our LinkedIn group. And I don't know why I didn't do that before. We've had a group. It's been, I'll be honest, I forgot about it. (laughs) But we have a group on LinkedIn. If you would like to join, just search for Revision Path. You can find it on there. We also are going to start updating the show on there just to try to get some community going on LinkedIn. I use LinkedIn all the time for the show. It never, for some reason, occurred to me to actually really start to tap into our community there. So hopefully, um, if you're not big on Instagram or Twitter, which... I think over the past year, if that's the case, I totally understand. Uh, Join us on LinkedIn. We'd love to see you. And if you really want to show your support for Revision Path, you should pick up some of our merch. You can get a nice t-shirt. You can get an embroidered hoodie with the Revision Path logo. You can get a notebook. You can get a coffee mug. We even have some stickers. We're going to start expanding out our merch probably in the next 
few months or so since this is our 10th anniversary we want to offer some new stuff other designs things like that but if you want some merch for yourself go to revisionpath.com click on merch at the top of the page or click or tap the link in the show notes as always thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time